John Dunkley of About Financial is an independent consultant who's published an analysis of the equity release sector. So I asked him to explore some home truths with me. And we we are now recording. So I, I, I wrote a report about equity release. You you then wrote a longer, better, more in-depth report about equity release, which I'm fine with, by the way, because my job was to try and sort of stimulate a bit of a conversation. And I mean, the fact that you then wrote your report, I feel, feel like, you know, I think we both come out of that reasonably well. But I also think that we could just sit here and talk about how wonderful equity release is, and that's not interesting to anybody. So I think it's important to explore some home truths. And certainly one of the things I found when I was doing the research was there's still a lot of latent resistance everywhere I turned, whether it's from advisors or manufacturers or regulators or uh, civil servants. You know, there's a lot of people who've still got a lot of reservations and hang-ups about equity release. And I imagine you found much the same? Yeah. I mean, I I think I'd probably temper that slightly by saying that there's a resistance to what people think is equity release, as opposed to perhaps the resistance to to the reality. And what what I mean by that, my dad sent me a great screenshot the other day. He's, He's a retired police officer. And they have a Facebook group for retired police officers called the Sixth of the Month Club because that's the day they get their pension. And somebody had posted on there, I'm thinking about doing equity release. Anyone got any personal knowledge about the ins and outs of it? Okay. And what followed was a tirade of abuse (laughs) about equity release. You know, I'm an executor of my uncle's estate. He did this. People shouldn't be able to sleep, you know, at night. They've been missold this, missold that. But invariably, what you then find is is an ongoing discussion about outdated views of equity release yep. as opposed to the reality of where we are now. So I think we're, we're paying the price still for perhaps the the not necessarily even the sins of the past, but but the products of the past in terms of, of modern perception now? I, I, I think that's that's largely true. I mean, the fact that the sector wasn't regulated till, what, 2004, and a lot of the, the most egregious misdemeanors occurred probably prior to that. I find it interesting that I still come across financial advisors today who wrinkle their nose and say, well, it's just all a rip-off, it's all poor value, why would anyone do that? And that attitude persists to this day. Mm. I think there are still concerns. Some of the stuff I absolutely agree with you, like you know, the negative equity thing has largely been boxed off by, by the, the, the product standards that have been introduced. Poor value home reversions are not so much a thing these days. I'm interested by the question around client care and the quality of the kind of advisor client experience. I think one of the things the FCA continues to be concerned about is just how well advisors are looking after their customers and going back to them after the sale has been made and doing, you know, taking a putting a consumer dutory hat on, which I know doesn't apply yet, but that's the road we're going down. Mm. You know, I think there are still concerns around some of that and whether the products are all good value for money. So I'd be interested in your thoughts around that. Yeah, I mean I think the value for money piece is going to be an interesting one and, and there's no no choice but to put that under a spotlight with consumer duty. I mean, that, that's fundamental to consumer duty. So that that will come come out in the wash. I don't know, in terms of value for money, the, the way I, I sometimes look at that, I think like, if, if someone was to say to me, will you lend me some money and I'll give it back to you at some point, 
you know, 20, maybe 30, possibly 40 years in the future. In the meantime, I won't pay you anything back if I don't want to pay you anything back. Then you but, assume they're one of your children at this point, right? Well, yeah, 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 right. So it's, it's, it's a very similar kind of conversation. Dad, can I have some money? I'll give it to you back when I get my memory back kind of thing. Yeah, but if, yeah. if, if I was offered that kind of a deal at a rate of interest, even currently, you know, five, six percent, Mm. I wouldn't, as a, a lender, be saying, yeah, that's a good bit of business for me. So I think we need to, to sort of temper the, the, the idea of value for money a little bit against the reality of what the product is. But that, not, notwithstanding that, I, I, the other point you make is a really interesting one for me around customer care, because you've got to look at the nature of the relationship between the advisor and the customer, how the advisor is remunerated for what they do. And then also, to an extent, what the providers will allow and feel comfortable with on an ongoing basis. So I know of at least one provider that was uncomfortable approaching the advisor when a client wanted to take a further drawdown. Right. And their concern was, we're not sure we've got the GDPR rights to be going back to that advisor, telling them that the client is doing something because they advised on the initial mm. product a feature of which is drawdown, but mm. is it right to then be telling that advisor what the client is doing on, on an ongoing basis? So there's a, a few issues to be squared off there. But I do think as a, a general principle, if we got to a position whereby perhaps even you know products changed in design so that there was a smaller initial proc fee paid with you know, 20, 30 bips on an ongoing basis for client servicing, Interesting. And then client servicing was, you know, actually delivered. Perhaps we'd end up with a better outcome down that kind of route. That's, I, I that's, think we need to be open to ideas. That's a really interesting perspective because I think one of the one of the concerns I bumped up against was this the distribution cost. You know, there's legal advice thrown in. There's the quite often a, a product fee. There's there's the advisor's fee. So you're looking at you know a four-figure sum up front coming out. Yeah. And that has to happen, right? Because professionals cost money and yeah. regulated professionals, you know, they've, they've got exams to pass. They've got hoops to jump through. You know, there's a price for their services. I think perhaps the cost of distribution is also a reflection of the reservations people have and therefore the the amount of marketing that has to go in to persuade people to buy the products. You know, this is stuff that comes with quite a lot of upfront costs and half of advertising costs are wasted. You just don't know which half. Um, and <laughs> yeah, um, so, so that, I think, is an enduring problem for the industry. And that reflects back onto the trust question and the reputation issue. And because the trust and reputation aren't there, the industry has to throw a lot of weight at persuading people to buy their products in the first well, place. And that all adds to distribution costs. Yes and no. I mean, I think the, the one fact, uh, one, one number that, that I see consistently when I speak to advisors is that the ultimate recommendation in a in broadly half of cases depending on who you're talking to which firm you're talking to but half is about an enduring figure in about half of cases they're saying equity release isn't right for you or it's not mm -hmm. right now or it's you know uh, there are better options so it's client attraction in terms of the cost of getting to sit in front of people i absolutely agree with you but then in terms of persuading people to go ahead with it i think you've also got to take into account the costs attached to telling people that it's not right for them. And we, we've got a problem then because you've got two options for charging for that. You either go down the 
the sort of contingent charging ban similar to mm. pensions and you say, well, the cost is the cost, whether you go ahead or whether you don't. Or you carry on as it is at the moment with proc fees being paid on completion by the provider and some cross subsidy for those people yep. that don't go ahead. Now, if you if you go for the, the former, you end up disenfranchising a, a larger part of the equity release market because that that larger part of the equity release market is coming to equity release because they don't have the money available up front to be able to pay for those mm. fees. And so we end up in this sort of circular argument. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I, I don't disagree with you. And I was, you know, I think there are not simple answers to those questions. I was just intrigued by your comment about reweighting the whole remuneration framework more towards some sort of recurring revenue to the advisor, which inherently sounds quite appealing to me. I quite, I mean, that, and that's how advisors like to run their businesses anyway. They're wealth managers. They want to, want to farm with clients. They want to look after clients. They don't want to have to be keep recurring selling stuff. So a shift in that emphasis is, is interesting. But then what would that do to the product pricing? Could that be accommodated within the the cost framework of of how the products are designed today? Yeah, I mean, it, I think, yes, it could. You know, at the moment, you, there, there is a, a procuration fee paid on completion of X percent of the release amount. You could reduce that amount and then pay, you know, a smaller amount on an ongoing basis. You probably wouldn't be paying huge sums that way. And I think, you know, that, that there are cleverer brains than mine that would need to... to to look at the maths on that one. But I think if you're mindful of the fact that a lot of equity release cases, and I should say later life lending more than equity release, mm. but a lot of cases in this sector are written not by advisors with that kind of renewal type business, but written mm. by specific mortgage and equity release brokers yep. who end up with quite a transactional business model and find that you know if they want to sell their business later on, there isn't a recurring income stream to be able to to sell on. So it might be attractive to, to that demographic as well, who can then build themselves an inherent value in the business. Certainly the, the few that I've spoken to about that kind of idea weren't against it, but obviously they've got to balance, you know, the cost of paying the bills today as well. So, you know, there's an open and frank dialogue needed, I think, on on all sides on that one. Yeah, yeah, but that, I want to stay with that because, I mean, you're just triggering another thought process. One of the things I bumped up against with the FCA was the fact that they, they've taken quite a siloed approach to this in the past. It's a mortgage product, you know, it's a loan, therefore it sits, it's regulated as a mortgage and... You know, that has an impact on how advisors deal with this kind of stuff. And as you say, I also found like typically advisors are specialists in equity release. So you've got your wealth manager advisors over here and you've yep. got your equity release lending advisors over here. And the former will hand off clients to the latter to, to execute transactions for them. If you start to design, if you start to think about equity release as a wealth decumulation proposition rather than as a loan proposition, and now it might involve a loan, but it is about the decumulation of that accumulated wealth yep. in the house, it becomes part of a wealth management question. And so you start to reverse that equity release back into the wealth management portfolio. And that would, that would certainly land more sympathetically with those wealth management advisors if the remuneration structure was built around, a, you know, if, if fitted in a alongside the SIP and the ICES that were also part of a, a recurring income proposition. I think that's kind of interesting. Mm. I, I think that, that that nature of it becoming more what I'm going to call level four, you know, the, the sort mm. of wealth type market, the complexity of, of the uses of, of, of the product, they are expanding. 
and the avenues for releasing equity and using equity from the property for broader financial planning are expanding. I think one of the problems that we've got still, though, is I've, I've heard some people say, well, what we should do is just make it, you know, level four requirement. If it's more complex now, only let wealth advisors do it, you know, take it away right. from the mortgage advisors. The problem that you've got there is that the majority of, and I, I, certainly, you know, not all, but the majority of wealth type advisors that I speak to are not specialists in the area, don't mm. don't really do a lot of this, don't really understand it. And the the knowledge, the experience, the expertise sits within those specialists who by and large are not level four wealth managers. So you almost need to get a, a, a better transference of, uh, of, of skills between them or, or a better lead generation um, and exchange relationship mm. going on between them rather than saying, let's back it all into this particular market. It's almost like a specialist service that, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm working as an IFA, if I need a tax planner, I'll call a specific tax planner in. Well, if I've decided that the property wealth is the right answer, I'll call a, a property wealth expert in. That's like a, a more comfortable model at the moment, certainly. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And certainly the majority of equity release advisors I've spoken to are very happy to specialise in doing that or being at least a mortgage advisor or specialising in equity release. And most of the wealth management advisors I've spoken to recognise that it, you know, they just they just don't have the the desire or the skills or the inclination to build that element of advice into their existing business proposition. So I think there is a natural tendency for this stuff to get handed off. Um, so I agree with you. A better flow between the two may well be the right answer. So ha- having said all of that, I've been struck. I mean, um, by the way, it was interesting that the FCA's Retirement Income Advice Review which they've announced, but to the best of my knowledge, haven't actually kicked off yet. That includes equity release. And I thought that was interesting. Yes. That the, they almost tagged it on at the end as an afterthought. And so, oh, yeah, we're going we're to look at you know, how, how pension freedoms are working and we'll do equity release while we're at it. I think that was your report. That predated <laughs> mine, so you can have the credit for that one. But, but interesting that they chose to bundle it yes, up together. Yes, no, agreed. Agreed. Um, yeah, and perhaps indicative of a a bit of a shift in the FCA's mindset that they are willing to unpack some of those silos a bit in terms of how they explore policy thinking going forwards. I mean, we'll see. You know, wait and see what what they do with that review. But um, you, I thought, highlighted very effectively the various problems that equity release can potentially solve. Though I was, I was on a call earlier this week and some, we, we got onto the subject of equity release and I think it was a colleague of mine who was on the call was laughingly saying, yeah, but equity release can't solve all these problems. And, and there was almost this, this sort of implication that uh, it'll solve the pension income problem, it'll solve the social care funding problem, it'll solve the inheritance planning, it'll, it'll sort divorce settlements out. It can be a solution to all of those things, but it can't fix all of them. You know, There's only a limit to the amount of housing wealth that we can decumulate. But I think just, just staying with the pension bit to start with, I, was, I can't envisage a future where we don't do more equity release because you look at the numbers and you look at the demographics yeah. and, you know, there is an undeniable shortfall that has to be met somewhere. Either that or you're going to have an awful lot more people living in poverty while sitting on an asset that they're not exactly. touching. And, and, and that just looks bonkers, right? Yeah, it, it beggars belief. I mean, I, my, my, my nan and granddad, God rest them, they, they you know, bought their council house in the, in the 80s, uh, you know, as, as many did. 
and, and when they died, it was sold. You know, it's in north north northwest London, um, and it sold for nearly six hundred thousand pounds. And you think, you know, that's a huge sum of money for yeah. for a, a, a very standard working class family to be sat on and not not getting the benefit from. They were okay in a sense because my my granddad had worked for the post office and uh, you know uh, and then onto telecom when um, they they, mm. they took phones out into telecom and he had a, a DB pension scheme. You know, my mum and dad, likewise, my dad was a police constable in the Met and mm. retired with a very good DB pension scheme. But unless you're working for the government, you know, I'm not, <laughs> that ship's largely sailed now. And you wind the clock forward. I think, well, you know, my dad's DB scheme, well, if I was going to buy an equivalent income at 55, what would I need? 1.1, 1.2 million for a police mm. constable's DB scheme. It, that's outside the reach of the average person. So you then start to look at the average pension fund, you start to look at the reality of retirement, and you think, well, what are we going to do? Oh, well, hang on a minute, I'm sat here on several hundred thousand pounds worth of asset, but it's called a house. It, it just, it doesn't compute that you wouldn't be thinking about using in some way that store of value if you are, you know, in, in retirement without adequate income. Yeah, as increasingly is going to be the case as we move through into the 2030s and yeah. 2040s. And and hopefully by the time we get to the 2050s, all of water enrolment and the DC provision will be taking up the slack and things will start to look a bit better again. But I think for the next couple of decades going forwards, where the majority of people reaching retirement will own their own home, and, and, and by the way, going through into the 2050s, we're going to increasingly find people arriving in retirement, maybe with better pensions, but who also don't own their own homes. So we'll yeah, have a different exactly. kind of problem to deal with <laughs> then. But for the next couple of decades, you know, why why would you not use that house? So, I, I mean, that's, that's the thing that I just kept coming back to is, you know, I can't envisage a future where we don't do this a great deal more. You picked up on other areas of financial need. I mean, social care funding, which was not something I dwelt on, but you highlighted the fact that equity release can potentially play a role in allowing people to continue living in their own home whilst, whilst paying for additional support. Yeah, uh, you know, and I think if COVID has shown us one thing, it's that, that there can be benefits to, to that kind of a, approach. But we get to this argument of fairness and is it right that people should be expected to use their own home's value to, to pay for their care? And it's a very emotive and very politically sensitive argument. My, my steer on it for what it's worth is, yes, it is fair in the sense that if it's my care and it's my money, then it's appropriate that that, that money stored within that property should be used and should be able to help with the cost of my care. Because fundamentally, and this is one of the things I always come back to with this, equity release is not going to penalise me. It's not mm. going to stop me from living the lifestyle that I lead. All that's happening is that it's reducing the amount of money that I can pass on to the next generation who haven't earned it. And, I, you know, I, I, I know that's going to um, going to rile some people, but that's the reality of it. You know, there, oh. there's huge amounts of wealth being passed on to a generation that haven't worked for that money, whilst the, the generation that, that have accumulated that money, some of it through work and some of it through exponential rise in property, you know, they're, they're sitting on, on a need for care and then looking to the younger generation without the DB pensions, without you know, potentially, as you say, without owning their own homes at any point in their lives, to pay for that through higher taxes. It, it just doesn't seem fair to me 
that we do it that way. Yeah, yeah. Why should why should you all pay for me to receive the care I need and preserve my house to pass on to my children? That's, exactly that. You know, where, where's the social mobility in that? Where's where's yeah. yeah. So uh, no, I'm 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 kind of with you on that. From a political point of view, I'm just watching with interest to see how, I mean, the Conservative Party particularly, but to a lesser extent, the Labour Party are probably a little more comfortable and at home with wealth taxation. But how they navigate this really awkward problem of all this wealth that's sloshing up at one end of the bath and, you know, all the baby boomers with their houses and their pensions and everything. And, you know, particularly the Conservative Party, but but politicians generally are loath to impose the wealth taxes on these people that have got all the money, but kind of have to find a way to take some of that money off those people or through their inheritances to redistribute it to the younger generation who at the moment are getting a pretty raw deal. Yeah. And the problem, of course, we've got is that when... Theresa May had the, um, mm. the the Alzheimer's tax that fared extremely badly, and the optics weren't great on that. So I think one of the things that I've said is that these issues are too big to be political pawns, and I think that that we need to have some sensible cross-party conversations about the the very real problems that that we do have. You know, we, we've got a country where they're opening food banks inside police stations. They're opening food banks inside hospitals for the nurses. That shouldn't be the case. You know, mm. and then mm. we're saying, well, we're going to load higher taxes on on those people so that the, the, this this generation can pass on property wealth to their children. It, it that there's something <laughs> something gone awry. Yeah. So, I mean, the other one I, that you picked out that I thought was also really interesting was the, the improving of the housing stocks, the, the green housing. So mm. the idea that, you know, because a lot of houses in this country are not particularly well built. They're, they're not very airtight. They leak heat and therefore value and money and they damage the environment. And there is the potential to use some of the value of the house to improve the house. And I thought that was a really interesting concept. But how do you encourage people to do that? How do you persuade people that they, you know, it's a desirable thing to do? Well, I think a, a more cynical man than I would um, would argue that some of the decisions that have been made on on energy pricing over the last couple of years <laughs> um, are, are partly um, partly driving that that agenda. But I think you know when you when you look at the, just the cost of heating a house, you look at the cost of of you know of gas and electricity these days. That in itself has got to be, a, and it's, I mean, I'm having those kind of conversations here with my wife. You know, we're thinking about the way that our energy bill has gone up, mm. and I'm looking around the house and thinking, well, are there things that we should be doing now that we can make, you know, for next winter, we can make this house more efficient because you know that will also save us a lot of money in the long run as well. So I think if ever there was a time for that argument to to come out. It's got to be now, not just from the, you know, a quarter of all our greenhouse gas emissions come from from property. Mm. That's not an argument that's got, a, you know, a what's in it for me. Whereas, you know, gas and electricity bills are at unheraldedly high times. How can you make it cheaper next winter? That's something that's got something in it for me and, and a, a conversation that I'd be more willing to have. So I think that's perhaps the argument to come at that one from is just how can you make your house more efficient and save yourselves money? 
you know, in the long run. Yeah, there's a bit of a sweet spot there, though, isn't there? Because, I mean, clearly no, doing equity release in your 50s or even your 60s is maybe a little premature. I had a conversation with my father-in-law who's well into his 80s now about the merits of putting solar panels on the roof and the payback periods on that. So, yeah, yeah. you know, you know there's, uh, there's, there's probably a sweet spot somewhere in your sort of 70s and early 80s beyond which the value of making those improvements to your home starts you know, less attractive yeah, so no, you're, you're um, absolutely right but I, I you know I, I think there are some fairly simple things that that you know if it, it doesn't even necessarily need to be specifically releasing money you know a, a products that are designed just for that purpose but there are products that are incentivizing people with lower interest rates if they also improve the the property at the same time so taking a bit more out to do some work on the property then saves you money on the other money that you're taking out so th there's a, a more rounded kind of argument to, to to look at there i think yeah no, that's interesting and you talked a bit about the kind of the need for a political consensus i mean one of the things mm. that struck me around this but i will move on to the politics before we go there just on the regulation i found the fca to be unsympathetic towards equity release generally. And I think back to the, the dear CEO letters and the reviews we've seen from the FCA, they seem to be coming at the whole equity release proposition as if we're not hypervigilant, bad stuff will happen here. You know, maybe the FCA just thinks about, like, about any financial transaction in those kind of terms. That's their job. But they, but they do seem to have a bit of a downer on equity release. I'd, just, I'd be interested in your thoughts around that and how, how, how we move on from there. Yeah, I, I think it's still, it comes across all the time as, a, as if their view is that it is a product of last resort, that it is you know, for those people that have no other way of raising money that this is something that you should only consider, you know, if you're desperate. And I, I don't I don't subscribe to that kind of, of argument at all. Ultimately, you know, it's a pot of money that's got my name written on it. And if I want to to use that money to have a better retirement, then I don't see why why that is such a bad thing. I think they, they almost seem to to lump it in along with pension transfers. Mm. And a lot of we get a lot of the same kind of, of messages coming out around equity release as we've had over the years about pension transfers. And there's one of the, the things that I've been quite vocal about in the sector is saying, you know, look to what's gone on with pension transfers and get your house in order ahead of time and preempt those kind of moves so that you're, you're, you're squeaky clean and, and you're dealing with things yourself. Because, yeah, the FTA does have this, this view. And I, I suppose one of the reasons for that is that your home is your home. And the home is quite emotive. Mm. And the worst thing that, you know, could happen to somebody in, in their later life is to end up being made homeless. But that's not the reality of the product, is it? No, it's not. And we've moved on quite a long way in the last 20 years in that regard, haven't we? Mm. So, um, and maybe maybe the FCA is taking a more expansive view of equity release now. I mean, I certainly think their impending review is an opportunity to engage with the FCA and talk about this kind of stuff with them. And that, you know, it would be uh, a failure on the part of the industry if it doesn't seize that opportunity and try and engage in constructive dialogue with the FCA. Yeah, agreed. So then there's the politics. And, and I was struck talking to the Treasury last year that they again seemed they seemed to view housing wealth in as much as they thought about it as you know could we just get old people to downsize could could we just get them to sell their big houses and move somewhere smaller so we can free up those nice big houses for younger families 
And they were obviously, you know, mindful of, as you've mentioned, you know, Theresa May's misstep over the dementia tax. And there seems to be a political reluctance to regard people drawing down on their housing wealth in retirement as being a, a, a potential solution to, to any of the problems we've talked about. Yeah, and I don't really understand that because, you know, the House of Lords report back in, what was it, 2012, 2013, highlighted the, the benefit of housing wealth as, as a potential solution to some of the issues around social care. And, you know, they talked about this unprecedented equity windfall that the gener- that generation mm. has enjoyed. You know, when you, you look at the... Uh, I think I gave some figures in the report around house price growth since the 60s. So if you've taken the average house price in the 60s and rolled it forward with just price inflation, you'd be looking at a house valued at around 90,000 today instead of over 300,000. So there's 200,000 pounds worth of created wealth there. Mm. To have this view that, you know, well, the, the only answer is to downside. We, we know that people don't want to do that. You know, home is home. People are attached to their homes. When, when my, my grandfather died, my, my, my nan's view was, oh, I'll sell up and I'll, I'll move when he dies. But the, the reality was when he did die, it was the last thing in the world that she wanted was to sell up because all their memories were in that house. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's a huge upheaval. And I mean, that disruption alone can be pretty daunting. Plus, yeah. whatever, even if you can get over that hump, you know, you are moving somewhere else. And so you need a whole set of new routines and patterns. And are you going to be able to maintain relationships with the friends that you've got? And yeah, everything gets shaken up. And the prospect of that, perhaps in your 80s, is not an attractive yeah. one. I mean, it's it's challenging enough at a younger age. Doing it at that stage of life is not not going to be appealing to people, is it? And we've also got a shortfall in those properties as well, because let, let, let's not, mm. not hide from that point. It's all very well saying get, get the older generation who, whose children have now flown the nest to downsize into smaller houses. But very often, those are the same smaller houses that the younger generation trying to get onto the property ladder also want to buy. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you solve one problem by freeing up the big houses by creating another problem at the other end. So is the, I mean, your report's still pretty new. Um, I, I can't remember how long it was published, a few weeks ago. Is the Equity Release Council looking to engage politically to use this as, as, a, as a catalyst, as a platform to try and stimulate a political discussion around these issues? That's certainly my understanding, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was commissioned as a, a, an independent external to write it. And, you know, that to be fair to them, they didn't agree with absolutely everything that was in there. But I think it's a Good. it's a talking yeah. point now. You know, it's a yeah. talking point that we've got your report and my report both saying broadly the same things hmm. as independent people looking at this from the outside. And, and that seems to be a, a, a good stimulus for that discussion. And I know that that certainly um, Jim and David at, at the council are, are very keen to have those kinds of discussions. Yeah, just just one other thing that you focused on that I kind of didn't consider in mind was the question of training and exams and qualifications and what the industry can do there to demonstrate its professionalism and competence and to encourage greater engagement across the industry. And I thought, I thought that was a really good point that you'd made. And, and, and that's something certainly that the, the ERC can lean into, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that, that, that I still just don't understand is that there's no mandatory CPD in mortgages and equity release. 
that doesn't make any sense to me. You know, if you're doing general insurance, you've got to do 15 hours of CPD. If you're doing level four, you've got to do 35 hours. If you're doing pension transfers, whack another 15 on. If you're a mortgage or equity release advisor, there's no mandatory CPD requirement. Well, there's a, a quick win straight away there. Yeah, yeah. So that doesn't look good. Why would you allow that to continue? Yeah. Good stuff. So uh, we've got the Equity Release Council conference coming up in a few weeks' time. That's middle of yes. May, isn't it? Will you be there? I will, yeah. I think I'm on the, on the stage with you. Excellent. Well, I look forward to that then. And uh, hopefully neither of us will have to do this again. Because, yeah. um, because, because what what we've done this time around will help stimulate change. I mean, I I I think there's there's huge potential here. I think there are huge opportunities, and and I really hope that the work that I did and that you've done will 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 help stimulate those changes. No, likewise. I I, I think we've got some major societal issues, and as you correctly said yourself, you know, th- this is not the answer to all of our ills. But it's not a bad starting point. Good stuff. John, good to talk to you. Thanks very much. Likewise. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.